Well, good morning, friends. It is good to see all of you. And I am thrilled to say, turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. It'll be a delight as we begin this time looking at the Gospel of Matthew together. I'm going to read for us from this Gospel, beginning in the first 17 verses there. The genealogy that is listed here to begin this gospel. And you read along in your copy of God's word, remembering as we go through this, that this is God's inerrant, inspired, and infallible and sufficient word, and it is for you this day. You follow along in your copy of the Bible as I read Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ." So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of the Lord. One of the things that I love most about C.S. Lewis, and you may not like him. There are people in here who think he's, you know, that's not their favorite offer. One of the things I love the most about C.S. Lewis is that when you read him, you are reading on one level a story 
And most of the time, on some other level, you're remembering another story that connects to this story somehow. I I love when that happens. It's like a theology and philosophy sneak attack. Like you're sitting there, you're minding your own business, you're reading a story, and all of a sudden, boom, it hits you. He's not talking about what he seems like he's talking about. I like that in music too. There there are these groups like Andrew Peterson or the Grey Havens where you're listening to just a three minute little ditty. You're listening to this song and it sneaks up on you and suddenly you realize this is not what I thought it was about. The words are doing something different underneath them than it looks like they're doing on the top and it excites you. It thrills your heart when you realize there's something else going on here As we come to the book, the Gospel of Matthew, that's the best analogy I can come up with for the way that I feel about what we're about to dive into. I am so excited to tell you there's so much on the surface that looks like a list of names, that looks like we're diving into a story about Jesus, and we are, and it is, and at the very same time, there is so much else going on at every turn in this particular gospel. I'm thrilled that we've got the opportunity to to go through this. I believe that we need the gospel of Matthew. I believe that we need it for many reasons. One reason is that we need to know that the Bible is one book, not two books broken in parts and scattered across, but that it is one book from beginning to end, and Matthew is working really hard to help us see the way that everything that happens when Jesus comes is related to everything that has already been happening by God's grace since Eden. We also need to understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, and Matthew spends a great deal of his gospel focused on what it means to live in the kingdom, to live as a citizen of the new gospel kingdom. Matthew wants us to understand that. But most of all, we need to see Jesus more clearly. And there's nothing that Matthew wants more than for us to take a good, hard look at who Jesus is and see him clearly. So I'm thrilled that we're going to be spending time in this particular book. I can't tell you as a student of the Bible, as your pastor, how excited I am that we're working our way through this. If you're new to Basswood, you're joining us at a pretty great moment. Uh, We, we from time to time, go to a new book or go to a new study. And that's a a great time to sort of get your feet all the way in and to, to, to dive in with us at the beginning of a new series. We are convinced that the whole Bible is the Word of God, that there's not a part of it that doesn't apply to our lives. From beginning to end, this book has a singular kind of authority in our lives. It has, it has a place that no other book has. And, and we don't just do a, a hat tip to that or sort of think that on the surface level. We believe that whatever this book says and whatever it means, we are responsible to respond to what it says and what it means. So our normal pattern on Sundays is to work our way through lengthy books. And we just take them one section at a time, working through trying to understand what those words meant to the original hearers so that we can understand what those words should mean to us and then taking application from that meaning and then living it out in obedience. That's our normal pattern on Sundays. And that's exactly what we're going to do as we work our way through the gospel of Matthew. We want a heart of submission to everything that we hear and read in this gospel. As we begin a new study, I want to encourage all of us to give ourselves to this study. You may not think of yourselves as an academic. You may not think of yourself as somebody who loves study or even reading, maybe. But I want to encourage you not to treat this study casually. 
I just encourage you to, to dive in with both feet, to invest time, to invest your mind, to invest your heart, to draw out all that you can from our time together in this gospel. Come in ready to receive good things from the Lord as we look at this book together. This morning, as we dive in, I want to do three things together. One is I want to give you an overview of the book an overview of the book, the Gospel of Matthew. And then I want to let Matthew, from the text that we just read, introduce the book to us. He's gonna have his, his word to say in those first 17 verses. And then I want us all to be amazed at God's good plan of redemption and his perfect redeemer, Jesus Christ. So those are the three moves that we're gonna make this morning. We're gonna start with an overview of the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, you probably already know, has 28 chapters. You may not know, it's got 1,071 verses in it. So if you were to just divide those up evenly, which it's not divided up evenly, but if you were to try to divide those up mathematically, you'd find that's about 38 verses a chapter, which is a little longer than some uh, particular uh, books of the Bible where they're maybe longer or shorter. It'll take you about two and a half hours to read it out loud. It's about the length of time it would take you, the little booklet that you got this morning, if you sat down and began to read that out loud, it would take you about two and a half hours, which for frame of reference, that's about a Braveheart. That's about a, a first episode of Lord of the Rings. Uh, for Ronnie, that's a Sound of Music. That, 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 is, that, 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 is, that is about the length of time that it would take you to read through that particular gospel, which is not a very long time if you think about it. We'll sit still for a couple of hours at a movie and not really balk at the idea. And here we've got a gospel that was meant to be seen first as a whole and then in parts. It would take you about two and a half hours to work through. If you started today, since it's 28 chapters, if you started, to, let's, let's start tomorrow. If you started tomorrow and read tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and read about somewhere around four and a half chapters every day, you'd have it done before we met again on Sunday, right? So it, it wouldn't take you long uh, to read through the gospel of Matthew. And I would encourage you this week to read through the entire gospel once, at least. If you could do it multiple times, that'd be great. If you want to download the audio app, this is, is kind of like the sneaky way to do books, right? So if you want to find the Bible app or find something that'll read it to you, I commend that. If, you're, if, you, if you don't want to sit down and read it or you don't have the time right now to necessarily this week give, give time to just reading it with your eyeballs, read it with your ears and give it some time this week. It'll take about two and a half hours to do that. So I want to encourage you in that. Um, and as we, as we work our way into it, uh, there are so many things that you need to know about this book. The first thing is, it's a brilliant piece of literature on its own. And I don't say that just because I'm a seminary guy, because I like to study. That, that is not why I say that. There are people who don't believe a word of the Bible who, when they come to the Gospel of Matthew, step back in awe at the literary quality of the book that we have in front of us. Now, I believe the entire Bible is of that literary quality, but this, this book does stand out as unique in its brilliance, in its, in its, uh, in its structure, and in its, in its meaning and depth. There's such an amazing uh, and powerful book in front of us that I want us to become acquainted with. I want you to know that on the, on the human plane, this is an absolutely striking piece of literary work. Well, let's talk a little bit about what, what the facts behind the gospel are. So who wrote the gospel of Matthew? And everybody's gonna say, well, Matthew. Well, of course, well, where do we see that in the book? Well, it never says it once in the book itself, right? So the, it doesn't say, hi, this is Matthew. I'm writing this, this, this particular gospel to you. But we do get it from the prescript where it says katamation in, in Greek, this, this pre 
prescript that has been attached to the gospel that sort of is a title of the book. And that particular prescript actually dates to the very earliest copies we have extant of the, the original manuscripts. It comes with it. And not just the original copies that we have, the earliest copies that we have of this have that it's from Matthew, but not just that, but even the early church fathers who spoke of this text very soon after the, the disciples and the apostles lived, very soon after the early church fathers were talking about this gospel and saying Matthew left us a gospel and here it is. Papias, Irenaeus, Pantanus, uh, Origen, all claim Matthew was the author. In fact, Papias claimed that Matthew wrote this gospel first in Hebrew to Jewish people and it was translated into Greek. So here, here we've got a book written by Matthew. He was one of the disciples, a former tax collector, a Jew who was working for the Roman government to collect taxes. You can imagine how well that went over with his friends. He was a tax collector. Uh, he, his name is presented as Levi at times, or Levi, if you want to pronounce it correctly. And then he becomes Matthew. So the Gospel of Matthew was written by Matthew. And what that means is we have a first-hand account of what was going on in the life and ministry of Jesus, arranged in such a precise way that it's meant to point our hearts in wonder at the goodness of God in fulfilling all the promises that he's made. Well, the, the, if the church father Irenaeus was correct, Matthew compiled this gospel just after or around the time that Mark was finish, finishing his gospel, somewhere in the 50s and 60s AD, uh, during that particular uh, decade, the, this, this gospel seems to come somewhere around there. It could be dated a little bit later than that, but probably not much beyond that. It also seems to have been first written to Jewish believers, possibly Jewish believers living in Syria, which is just north of, of Israel. Broadly speaking, all of the evidence, if you just read the gospel this week, you'll see all of the evidence points to this particular gospel being aimed to a primarily Jewish audience. There are over 130 scripture quotes and references to Old Testament ideas in this gospel. Matthew was very concerned that people who had a background in the Old Testament understood how Jesus fulfilled it all. That was a primary concern that Matthew brought in. And it makes total sense because you've got all of these Jewish people living under the boot of Rome and probably asking the question, Lord, you've sent us out into exile. When will you bring us home for real? When will, when will the kingdom come, oh God? So Matthew wants to answer that question for those people. A note that you may not have considered about the way that gospels work. You may already know this. Gospels are not trying to give us just a play-by-play of events. That's not the way that gospels are written. Gospels are a genre of their own, and they are historically accurate, but they are written with a theological point in mind. And so the authors of the gospel, all four gospels, feel every urgency to say these particular stories that really did happen are best arranged in a way that makes a theological point to you. It's not strict chronology. It is historically accurate with a theological point. And so Matthew arranges his gospel in that way. He's not merely trying to give you a recounting of events as an unbiased bystander, though he did see it all with his own eyes. He wants you to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And so when he's arranging the accounting of all that occurred, he wants to emphasize the things that will help you see clearly the way that Jesus is the Christ. And all the gospel writers write just exactly that same way. 
You may know that Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke are often called the synoptic gospels that stand together. They seem to share similar stories and give some of those accounts. And John sort of has, a, has his own unique perspective that he brings to it. But all of them are aiming toward belief as the goal, not merely historical recounting. Well, if Matthew had theological goals in mind, we probably ought to think about what they might be. We probably ought to consider if he's got a point to writing this book, I'd like to know what it is as I get in to that book. When I was in college, I was assigned a book to read. Uh, the, the title of it sounds sort of crazy for college kids to read, but it's by Mortimer J. Adler. And if you know the book I'm talking about, it's called How to Read a Book <laughs> by Mortimer J. Adler. And I, I commend it. The, the last section's probably dated and doesn't work as well, but the first, two, the first two parts of that book really talk about how to read a book, how to come in thinking like a person who wants to understand something out of a book instead of just letting something happen to you and missing big parts. And one of the things that I learned that has stuck with me is that when you read a book, one of the most helpful things you can do, you can, I'll save you the having to go buy the book. Here, one of the most helpful things you can do is read the outside of the book first, then start with a table of contents and read the entire table of contents. Then go to the prefatory material that's meant and put in there to give you an idea of what's ahead. If you just do that, you get a cheat sheet for the whole book, right? Now you know the argument that's going to be made. You know, you know what other people are saying about it. You have a summary of the ideas that are going to be presented. You've got an idea where we're going together, right? Well, today I'm going to be your table of contents. We're going to, we're going to work our way through very rapidly, uh, not every part of, of Matthew, but the big frameworks in the gospel of Matthew that I hope will give you a cheat sheet or a way of, of working through Matthew's argument or his logic uh, as you do that. The table of contents that I wrote is strikingly unimpressive. Beginning, middle, end. Woo, boy, aren't you glad you came today, right? I know that doesn't seem impressive, but there really are these three large sections that Matthew breaks this gospel up into. The first three chapters of the gospel of Matthew are sort of meant to arrive at the, the understanding of who Jesus is and where he came from. And it's the beginning of the story of Jesus. It's meant to get us up to speed before we get into the ministry and life of Jesus. So everything that he does in those first three chapters is meant to give you a taste of who you're talking about that this story is going to be about. Then, in that middle section, it, it is undeniable that Matthew has a very specific pattern that he follows. Matthew gives his middle section of the gospel, the meat of the gospel, has five units in it, and they each have two parts in them, and they mimic each other all the way through. So five times you have a narrative or a story account, and then you have a teaching or a discourse account. And that's a unit. And then you do that five times, right? You now have the outline of Matthew. You have narrative, you have discourse, repeat times five. It's interesting to me that Matthew chose five as he did that. It's almost like there would be some other book that Jewish people would be aware of that would begin its story and be based on a pattern where there were five important Books, And I'm not going to weigh too heavily in on that, but it is very striking that Matthew doesn't shy away from looking sort of like there's a new testament coming to what God is doing. It is though the Pentateuch has come to life 
right there in what Matthew is writing. So he gives you five different sections of narrative and discourse, narrative and discourse, narrative and discourse. It follows that five times. And then you get those last three chapters again. It sort of mirrors the front end where at the very backside of Matthew in chapter 26, 26, 27, and 28, where you get this rousing climax, one of the most climactic endings of a book in the Bible, you get at the end of the gospel of Matthew that brings together the, the passion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so that's your basic outline of the book. You can kind of fly over the entire thing and basically put yourself in. Where are you at any stage knowing that information? I think that's, that's helpful and it's brilliant in its simplicity and arrangement. Um, so that symmetry is just astounding. But friends, guess what? That's just the start of the beauty of what we're going to see here. Think about how Matthew starts his gospel. He starts it in such an interesting way. So if you were to open up the gospel of John, what you're going to find is one of the epic passages in New Testament gospel writing. You're going to find John 1, 1, where in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And you, you turn back one gospel and you get to Luke and Luke starts his with Luke 1, 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This is an epic start. I want you to know that you know that you know that what you're reading is true. And then Mark, of course, the gospel of action starts basically with a proclamation of here it comes, guess what? John the Baptist was here and he's, he, he is the promised one who's gonna make the way straight. Ready, let's boom, let's go. And he starts into the gospel. Um, and then you come to Matthew. And what do we get? A genealogy, right? It, it sort of strikes you. This, this one stands out. It, it, it's different. You start with a discussion of whose daddy was who. It starts with the question of lineage. Well, we'll see that this lineage is absolutely crucial. The genealogy is essential. Some other interesting things that you might want to know about the Gospel of Matthew as we work our way through it, and I mentioned this before, but the, the, the Gospel of Matthew is filled up with Old Testament imagery and quotes. Matthew wants you to be absolutely sure that you understand that the beginning of what Jesus did, and I love that, that we have Matthew at the beginning of the New Testament because it connects everything that happens through and in Christ with everything that's already come before. Matthew is highly concerned that you not divide your Bible into and push one thing apart as old-fashioned stories and moral tales and have another thing about Jesus. He wants you to see that it all goes together. And so he begins with that in mind and does it repeatedly throughout the gospel. He's going to tell us this was done to fill up what the apostles said. This was, or the, the prophets said. This was done to fulfill the law, which says. This was done in order to fulfill. He has it over and over and over again in his gospel. He repeatedly points out that Jesus is filling up all those things. But another thing that, that Matthew seems to point to is the way that Jesus deals with people who are outside of Israel. It, it's striking to me the way that Jesus handles people who are really considered sinners and Gentiles and outcasts in his gospel. This is, this is not a gospel filled up with people who have their act together. It, it's unexpected and, and, and it's really wonderful the way that we see Jesus Meeting people where they are, messed up people, maybe just like us. I think those are some of the interesting things we're going to see. But there are, what I want to suggest are three key themes that I want you to keep your eye tuned for 
the entire time that we're in the, the, the gospel of Matthew. If you, if you keep your eye tuned for these themes, I think you'll be getting, you'll, you'll stay close to what Matthew wanted us to stay near. Matthew wants everything that he writes to help his readers understand that what God has been doing for the last 4,000 years prior to Matthew are all connected to what Jesus did. And so the first theme that he goes back to over and over and over is the theme of fulfillment. The theme of fulfillment. You remember the first time that you saw the guy in the black cape with the black mask and the, the, the lightsaber tell the other guy, the, the Jedi, the young guy, that he's his father? And you went, <gasps> and it's, it made sense of some of the backstory that you didn't see before? You remember, maybe if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, the first one, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when Aslan dies on the stone in order to, to help redeem Edmund from what he had gotten himself into. And you go, oh, I see something else here. This isn't about a lion and a stone. There, there's some other sacrifice being pictured by what's happening here. In the same way, Matthew is filled up with fulfillment. It's everywhere. Everything that happens in this gospel is all about fulfillment. It happens over and over. All that God had promised all the way back in the garden, Jesus is filling up. Jesus is the promised seed that would crush the serpent's head. He is the promised seed of Abraham. He is the, the promised Davidic king. He is the, the new Joshua that leads God's people out of their captivity and into the promised land. He is, he is everything that every prophet longed for. He is, every, he is what every prophet, priest, and king should have been. He's the fulfillment of it all. Jesus is. And so we're going to see the, the theme of fulfillment happen over and over. Another major theme in the Gospel of Matthew is the theme of the kingdom of God. But that's not some mystical or esoteric idea. It's very simple and practical. If God promised to make a people for himself, if he promised there's going to be his people, his family, where is that promised people? Who, who are they? Where did they go? Where is that kingdom in this world that is filled up with fleshly power and political kingdoms? Where is God's kingdom? Matthew wants to make it abundantly clear that with the coming of Jesus, the doors to the kingdom of God opened wide. Space and time are ripped open. The kingdom have come, has come pouring in through Jesus and through his people that he is saving in Jesus, we have both the coming of the king and the kingdom. But another third major theme that Matthew really emphasizes is, is Christ, the Christ, the Christos. That, that word, we, we have such familiarity with it that we don't really always think about what it means. But the, the Greek word Christos is the Greek way of saying Messiah, which is a Hebrew idea about the one that was chosen and anointed by God to rescue his people. The one who's going to come to be the one that God's blessing would rest on that he might make of his vagabond people a real people. The one who would come and rescue and Jesus is the Christ. So who will save? It is Messiah. It is Christ. And who is the Christ? It is Jesus. 
So we get all of that, and that happens over and over and over from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 28. You're going to see those themes come back up and up and up over and over again. So there are other themes that we'll see, other things that we'll consider, lots of other good things, but fulfillment and kingdom and the Christ are three of the major parts that we will that we will look at. Well, that's my version of the overview. Let's let Matthew talk for just a moment. Let's, let's let him have the word in these first 17 verses. These, these, these 17 verses are an amazing collections of names. We're, we're gonna get into them in just a second and look at them a little more closely, but, but let me explain that starting with a genealogy is not just some old-fashioned mechanism or some literary tool. Uh, Matthew is doing this on purpose. He's writing to a largely Jewish audience that knew that God had made specific promises to specific people in history about their specific children, then it matters to know, is that who this is? Is he in that line? Did he come through those promises? Matters enormously. And so this genealogy plays a large part in validating the work of Jesus. If Jesus is the Christ, there are specific human ancestors that would have to be involved for this to be true. So he gets started in answering that question by bringing in the lineage. But it's not just that. <laughs> he also is doing something, I think this is absolutely astounding. He is linking his writing to what God had done in Genesis. So he begins the New Testament, or he begins his letter, his, his, epist his uh, gospel, with a mimicking of what happened in the book of Genesis. Some of you are old enough to have been here when Basswood went through the, went through the book of Genesis. It took us a long time to go through the book of Genesis. And one of the things that we learned when we were working our way through Genesis is that Genesis has a literary tool, a technique, a device, a literary mechanism that links stories to each other. And it's these genealogies that appear over and over again. So this is the generations of, is what it says in our English Bibles. And these are the generations of, and then it gives you this long list of names. And most of you in your Bible readings finish that up sometime in January. And you're going through those and you're like, yeah, I don't, I'm not naming my kids any of those things probably. So I, I don't know what to do with these lists. But think, these are real people that God really did work through. So these, these names matter. They're inspired. They're as inspired as every other part of the Bible. So we, we receive them as good for us, even as we read through lists of names that God is specifically dealing with. But these are the generations of, is the hinge, and there are 10 of them in the book of Genesis. And they are called Toledot sections. That's a, that's a fancy Hebrew word. You don't need to know it. But these Toledot sections, they are the hinge points of the story of God starting his people. And then Matthew comes along and starts with a genealogy. It's like he's saying, there's one more Toledot I need to tell you about. I, 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 got, I got one more, one more to tell you, and it fills up all the rest. It's amazing to me. You, you get this, this, this connection that links it straight into God's work in the Old Testament. That what Matthew is saying is what God started and did through all these families, he never stopped. And here comes the promise right now. And he's delivering it all in Jesus through this genealogy. But it, it gets even better than that. <laughs> because Matthew doesn't give us a strict genealogy. And by strict, I mean when he says so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, it is very common in all ancient Near Eastern writing that when you say is the father of, you don't have to mean strictly like your next son in line. You can mean is in the family line of, right? So you could be a descendant. You could be multiple generations down and say, well, that's one of his sons. 
And it's, that's not out of bounds, right? That, that's right. We think of it in a much more linear sense, but in this time they didn't, that is not how they used those things. They would, they would say, so-and-so is the son of so-and-so, and you meant they came from that family. At any point in the family, it didn't really matter exactly when, but they're the, they're the son of that family, right? So Matthew uses that and writes this genealogy in such a way that he represents three generations of 14 generations, right? And he does a little bit of like, there's some generations squished together and some kind of spread out. And he, he doesn't do it exact, but he arranges it in three sets of 14, which to us is like, okay, so, I mean, three sets of 14, that's great. Well, in Hebrew, you don't have numbers like we have. Like we have an Arabic number set that is like a separate from our alphabet. In Hebrew, you count using letters. So A is one, B is two, you say Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth. You, you have all of the letters actually represent a number. And so you get to 14, you get to the name David, and David, to a Jewish person, is represented by the number 14. And here's how that works. There are three consonants in the name David. It is D, V, D. If you count in the Hebrew alphabet to which number in their alphabet it is, it is 4, 6, 4, which is 14, right? So 4 plus 6 is 10 plus 4 is 14. I did the math for you. So 14 is David. And Matthew's genealogy is three, a perfect set of 14s. Now, I'm not going to lean too far in because I'm not into all the, like, their secret codes in the Bible that have numbers in them and all that. But I'm just saying, a Jewish reader, when they read this and they heard, I've got a genealogy for you, and it's got three sets of 14 names, and we're going to start by telling you he's the son of David, the son of Abraham. There's nobody who missed the significance of this genealogy. He is saying Jesus is the promised son of David. God made a promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7 where he said there will always be one of your sons sitting on my throne. Well, what are you going to do then when we have all of the Jews put into exile and then you have Persia and then you have Greece and then you have Rome who's conquered, conquered, conquered? Where's our king? Where's our king? Where's our king? Let me tell you about the son of David, Matthew says, and he's the son of Abraham. He's the promised one, and his name is Yeshua, Jesus, the Christ. Well, it's not just all of that. This, this list of names is extraordinary. The list itself. It, it may not, we, we may not be as familiar with it, but it, is, it stands out as completely unique in genealogies, not just in the Bible, but in ancient Near Eastern history. This is not the kind of list you'd find for most polite uh, uh, genealogies. You, you really, the kinds of people that you'd want to skip in your genealogy and like go a generation past, like you'd be like, yeah, well, I mean, like Uncle Jimmy, he's a part of the family, but we don't really talk about him. We just kind of move on to the next generation. Like his kids are pretty good, but that guy was a wreck, right? Well, this list has the wrong people in it if you're, if you're trying to skip the bad folks, right? There are great folks in here. There are also people who you would be like, that is not somebody I would say um, I'm in their family. It's in, they're in the list. I, I like the way that Obi-Wan talked about Moss Eisley Space Court. You never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy, right? That's what it feels like when you read this list is that it's like, these are not the good people. Like, these are not the, we invite them to Thanksgiving and show them off people. This, there, there are people in this list that are just a wreck. I mean, think of Abijah and Ahaz and Manasseh. You're going to include him in your family tree? Boy. So there's the wrong kind of people, but it's not just that. Uh, ancient Near Eastern uh, lineages didn't normally include moms. They didn't normally include the women in the family, right? It was like, who's the man who was the protector, the provider, the one in charge of that family? What well, family heads are who we keep in this list. But this list 
if you include Mary, has five women in it. Five. It, it's extraordinary. This stands out. This would, this would be absolutely eye-opening to the early readers. They would, they, they would catch their breath. But, but not just that there are women in this list, but it's not just Jewish people. You, you've, you've got a Canaanite and a Moabite on the list of people in the lineage. So what is going on then if these are the people in the list of David's promised son, Abraham's promised seed, the Messiah? Well, I have got to believe that two things are true. One, it's true. <laughs> well, it's historically accurate. These are people that are in this list, right? So it's true. But number two, I think Matthew wants to make it absolutely clear that everyone, Jesus has come to be savior of every kind of person. That there's no one who's going to be outside of the reach of this king. No one who finds themselves in a group, a category, a place that he will not rescue them. You see Jesus as a Christ who will rescue all kinds of people, savior of all. In fact, in the upside down kingdom of Jesus, he really only came for sinners. He only came for broken people. He didn't come for anybody who has it all together because there aren't any of those people who have it all together. Well, let's very briefly, as quickly as we're able, scan the genealogy. I'm not gonna mention every single name, but I'll mention a lot of them and try to help us work our way through this list. First, look at verse one. Matthew tells us right out of the gates that this is a book, a biblos, a book of the genealogy. So it's as if he's not just prefacing this unit, this section as a genealogy, but this whole book is a description of everything that happened uh, that matters in terms of the history of Jesus, who Matthew calls for us right out of the gate, the Christos, and then identifies him specifically as the son of David, which we mentioned is, is a fulfillment of the promise that God gave to David that he'd always have a son on the throne. And even when it looks like that's not gonna be able to happen, it's happening right in front of their eyes through Jesus. God has kept his promise to David, and David's son is here. Well, you could go further back than that if you wanted, than, than David. You could go back all the way to the garden to Adam. and that, I mean, that's how Luke, when he does a genealogy, he goes all the way back. But, but, but uh, Matthew it goes back to Genesis chapter 12 and mentions Abram and the promise. Do you remember the promise in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, that God gave to Abraham where he called him and said to him, that I will bless you. And I will make you a blessing to others. That He's going to bless Abraham and his family in order that Abraham would take that blessing and be a blessing to others. And Matthew's saying, remember that promise? The promise of the king? Kept. The promise of the blessing even to the Gentiles? Kept. In Christ. Fulfillment. Kingdom. Christ. It's, it's, it's all right here. Even at the very beginning in this first verse. Starting in verse two, you get a running list of names. And to me, I thought of those, those pictures that are like a picture made up of a billion pictures that make the picture. Have you seen those things where you, where you see like these kind of really small pictures and you get one big picture? And he's drawing the big picture of the Christ and who he is. And he's using these, these smaller character pictures as he works his way through there. And first up, we get Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the, the patriarch. And he, he chooses to, to point to them to remind this is right out of the family line, the promised seed of Abraham down through his sons. And then you begin to follow down through the line of Judah. 
And when we get to Judah, we already get the first mention of a woman when Tamar is mentioned. And when, when, when you mention that incident in Genesis 38, this is not like a highlight reel of, of the way that the, the, the patriarchs live their lives, right? There's this, this horrible, horrible way that, that she's treated and that she is used uh, in that particular uh, moment. But the way that God is actually preserving the seed of the promised son through even the brokenness of human frailty. That God is continuing the seed on. And so you, you get that, that mention. And then in verses 3 and 4, the patriarchal history goes into the period of Egyptian bondage and into the Exodus by mentioning Perez all the way down to Nashon. And we get, when we go from Nashon to Salmon to Boaz to Obed to Jesse to David, and we see right there in, in the midst of those that you get two more women brought into the discussion. You get Rahab the Canaanite prostitute and Ruth the Moabitess. Well, I mean, if you remember where the Moabites family came from, that's a pretty hard story. Um, but she is of the line of the, of the Moabites, a scandalous family origin. And the Canaanites weren't normally the good guys, although Rahab in her, in her particular account seems to, to have been that. Uh, but you make it all the way to David and you've already got a lot of questions. What are you doing? What are you doing? And I believe Matthew is showing all the people are going to be a part of this. People who are not in the promised uh, people, who are in the covenant people, all the nations are going to be blessed. All the nations are going to be blessed through Jesus, who is the Christ, and through the chosen son of David, who is Jesus. You know, David's story has his own dark scene. And oddly, that's the point Matthew chooses to point to, right? He doesn't say, David, you know, the guy who had a heart after God's own heart. <laughs> That's not, the, that's not the moment that Matthew puts in the genealogy. When you, when you read the account, he, he mentions Uriah and his wife, and we all immediately go, oh, wait, that was adultery and murder. That's, that's the scene that Matthew wants to bring up from King David's life. He reminds everybody that even though David fell into sin and, and, and of the sin of adultery and murder, that, that God actually blessed and forgave and was merciful even through him before that little baby Solomon came along. And after Solomon, you get, you get the next section broken up and you get the, the divided kingdom where you see Rehoboam, who was the, the harsh and oppressive, and Abijah, who, who uh, 1 Kings 15 tells us, walked in the sins of his father. But then you get, there's, here, there are godly people on this list too, godly Asa, who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. You get Jehoshaphat, who the scriptures tell us that the Lord was with him. And then you get Joram, who in 2 Chronicles 21 died, and it says, to no one's regret. <laughs> and then Matthew jumps ahead. He skips a few generations and goes to uh, Joram's descendant, Uzziah, the leper king. Um, and after his reign, you get a son, Jotham, who kept up the material gains of Israel, but his son Ahaz was absolutely uh, evil. And then you get this, the, his son, Hezekiah, who took the throne, and then he stands out as a godly and faithful king. There was revival and restoration under Hezekiah. And his son, Manasseh, did everything he could to erase his father's legacy. He lived uh, just, just like a pagan. So then you get his son, Amon, who doubled down to the point that he was murdered by his own servants in 2 Chronicle 33. And then in God's mercy, Amon's son, Josiah, took the throne. And of course, you remember Josiah loved the Lord. He rid the land of idolatry. He repaired the temple. He reaffirmed the covenant. After Josiah, you skip ahead a generation or two and get uh, Joy, uh, Jehoiakim. And that name Jehoiakim is not, it's, there are several names where you get both like the, maybe the Hebrew name or like a, a, a Greco version of the name. So, so you'll see Jeconia in most English Bibles, right? But that, that's sort of like Matthew and Levi. That's sort of like Simon and Peter. You, you can have more than one name and be talking about the same guy. So Je, uh, Jeconiah there is talking about Jehoiachin. Um, 
But those were, those were some of the, the absolutely wicked generations that end up leading Israel right out of the promised land as God's judgment falls through Assyria and then Babylon. And you get this, this list of, of, of all of these villains that are mentioned there, and you're left thinking, when is God going to make the David guy come back? When do we get that promise filled up? When does the servant mentioned in Isaiah 53, when's that coming back? When do we have that? And you, you see here in the, those next list of generations that, that work through the deportation, uh, most of those, uh, several of those names toward the ending are one that Matthew actually seems to have researched and found that aren't necessarily mentioned in Scripture uh, in, in other places, only here. And you find your way all the way down through the deportation to Joseph who married Mary, who was the mother of Jesus. Three sets of 14, from Abraham to David to exile to Jesus. From Abraham to David to exile to Jesus. Abraham's promise, David's promise, and the restoration of the people from exile filled up in Jesus, all in this genealogy. God never forgot one of his promises to his people. He, he, he kept every promise to every one of those people in Christ. It, Jesus is yes and amen to all of God's promises. Matthew wants us to see it's all been building to Jesus. Everything has been pointing in this direction. It's been all of the answers are going to be in this one man. It is all coming true now, right in front of our eyes. So that's how Matthew introduces his gospel. He gives us a genealogy filled up with, with broken and sinful people, but at the very same time with hope and with promise. It was like a seed was planted in the Old Testament, pushed down into the dirt where it almost wasn't able to be seen by the eye. And then a tender branch comes forth. And now in Christ, you have the full vine and fruit developed. And Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is the fulfillment. He is the king. He is the Christ. So what do we do in response to that? If, that, if all that's going on in this list of names is meant to draw us into amazement, then my first application is be amazed. Just be amazed at God's faithfulness. Wonder and awe at the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God. This is the account of the Redeemer, the Christ, and it doesn't start with a whole bunch of people who are minding their P's and Q's. It's broken people, ruined by sin. That's who's in the list. And it's us. And we ought to be amazed that God rescues broken people who don't have it all together. Can I just encourage you, broken one, take heart. In this room, broken one, one with all the questions and very few answers, take heart. God has not abandoned you. In fact, your brokenness does not itself push God from you. Your brokenness is why he drew near. Do you see that? No one gets themselves together so that God will come near to them. He comes near in the midst of our brokenness to restore and to cleanse, to make whole what is broken. So broken people don't need to fear that Christ will run from them. Listen, your sin, my sin, our sin is awful. It's a betrayal of God. And even as we were his enemies, he has shown his love toward us by drawing near in Christ. 
In love and mercy, he saves people just like us. This list reminds me that the gospel is, is a wonder and that it's only for real people. It's only for broken people. If you feel the pressure to pretend that sin hasn't affected your life and broken anything in it, let me just tell you, that's going to be hard to do. It, it, it will exhaust you, and you'll know you're lying. We all know you're lying, and God knows you're lying. Instead, see that God, the merciful one, rescues sinners. Does that astound you? You look at this list. You see the, the crooks and the villains in this list. Jesus rescues sinners. So you can run to him. He will forgive your sins. He will cleanse you of your sins. He will make it so that you can, by the Spirit, say what we read in Psalm 119. I love your law, God. I love it. I want that so badly. I want my life to look like that. But in myself, I know who I am. And I love all the wrong things in myself. God, I need you to rescue me. And he does. He rescues sinners. Take awe at the fact that he rescues sinners. But also note that he keeps his promises. He keeps his promises. All of those are real people in history. None of those are just made up like a fairy tale version of, well, I want to draw this really pretty picture of how Messiah actually comes into the world. Those are real human beings with whom God did actual business, who have family lines and can be pointed to as authentically real human beings, which means God works in real human history. This is not just some book of fancy tales. This is the account of God's actual work in human history. And he did it all, summed it all up through Jesus actually entering history so that sinners like you and me could be saved. It's an astounding reality when you think about it. Be amazed that Jesus didn't, he's not some fictional savior. He's an actual savior who actually came according to actual promises to actually rescue real sinners. It's an amazing thing. And it all happened at just the right time. Do you remember Galatians? Feels like forever ago, right? Galatians chapter four, verse four says, when the fullness of time had come. You, you, you might ask the question, Matt, where, where? Okay, so the end of Malachi happens and, and that's like 400 years before the New Testament. Where, what's going on in those years? Where, where is God when it feels like he's not around? Faithfully keeping his promises in the midst of the quietest moment of your life, where is God faithfully keeping his promises? You may not always see him. You may not always hear him. And he is still there faithfully keeping his promises so that Paul could say, at just the right time, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. God's timing is perfect. It's absolutely perfect. You and I might want to go straight from Adam to Jesus. Like we, it all breaks, and we're like, could I please have the remedy right now? And God says, there's gonna be a baby who's coming. There's a baby coming. 
And then generation after generation after generation of faithfully loving his people, mercifully dealing with his people, graciously leading his people, generation after generation after generation, learning that God is a good father, that God is a good shepherd. God works within the realm of history and over time to accomplish all that he means to accomplish. So all the years of exile and then the return come at just the right time. The breaking of the silence happens exactly at the right moment. When it is most fitting that Jesus would come, he came. Just at the right time, God sent forth his son. God's always on time. Do you believe that? I mean, really. I mean, if if you'll let me be a transparent preacher instead of pretend I'm some kind of perfect guy, sometimes I'm scared that God's late or he, he didn't deliver in the right moment. Have you ever felt that way? Where you thought, man, I don't know, Lord, this, this, whatever just happened, that doesn't feel on time to me. But it is in those moments that I have to remember my view of my own life is so limited. It's so limited. When I look at my life, I'm often looking through things that God can see right through and above and around, and he knows precisely what the right time is for everything in my life. I believe there's no one here today for whom God did not appoint this hour for you to be here. I mean, you may think you just drove your car over here and you're just here because we're having lunch on a second or whatever. Like, okay, that's fine. You can believe what you want. I believe God's timing is perfect. So I believe you're here for a reason. I believe everything that happens in our lives happens right on time, even when it takes time for us to figure out how that was on time. I wonder, would you be humble enough to see that God sent Jesus at just the right time and that you're here hearing about Jesus at just the right time? Would you respond to the gospel today? Would you respond to the knowledge that you've been granted to know that Christ did did all the promises of God, Christ filled them up and did for you something you can't do on your own, which is pay the full price for your sins? Be amazed by the perfect timing of the redemption. Be amazed at all that Christ is. It might make us start to sing. It's, why, it's, why, it's one of the reasons that we sing. It's not, it's not merely that we're commanded to, and we are commanded to sing. So all you people who are like, I don't like to sing, I just want to say, suck it up, buttercup. You are, you are commanded to sing by God. He cares that you sing, all right? That's, you, you not like me for saying it. You just read your Bible. Go to the book of Psalms and convince me after you've read the entire thing that you're not supposed to sing. You're supposed to sing. But besides the fact that we're supposed to, how else are we going to respond to some truth like this? What else are we going to do besides break into song? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Why do we sing these humongous, audaciously, unbelievably big thank yous and praises. Why do we do that? Alas, and did my Savior bleed? And did my sovereign die? Would he devote his sacred head for such a worm as I? How how does that make any sense? I'm like the people on this list. 
I didn't deserve a savior. You don't deserve a savior. And he came and he died for us. Now, what's the explanation to that? Well, we'd sing it. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sins. Why? To the glory of his grace. That's why. You're trying to explain it to me logically. I'm going to point you right at God's grace. Because that's who he is, generation after generation after generation, tasting and seeing that God is faithful, that God is merciful, and that God is filled with glorious grace. So at just the right time, he sent Christ. Friends, have you tasted the grace of God yourself? I'm not asking you if you know about Jesus. There are, most of the people in this room are in families that know a lot of things about Jesus. Some of you may come from backgrounds where you don't know a lot about Jesus, but that's not the question I'm asking you if you know about him. There's a world of difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing the Christ yourself. And that second part of that question is the only thing that matters because knowing about Jesus will not save you. You, you, could, you could join Andrew Peterson and sing the Begat song, sing all these names and it'd be really impressive, like all the, all the names, you just sing them. But if you don't know the Savior, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. I thought about it this week. This is not the only genealogy in the Bible. It's not the only list of names in the Bible, is it? There's a lot of lists of names. And just from my own perspective, the one that I'm most concerned about, the most concerning list of names in the Bible, to me, the, the, the most the most critical list of names in the Bible is the one that's written on God's heart and in his book, on his hand. We sing about it because the Bible talks about it that way, that our name is written on his hand. The, one, the, the, the list that indicates I, I am in personal relationship with the Lord God Almighty through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. That's, that's the list of names that matters. Our, our church role matters. We care about membership here, but that's not, that's not what Jesus is checking in the final judgment? Or are you in personal relationship with the Lord Jesus through his work on the cross on your behalf? My hope is that Jesus is not merely a concept to you, but that you could stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love you, a sinner condemned, unclean. So are you amazed when we come to this genealogy and when we see the Christ represented here. I pray that you are. Well, friends, I'm going to end where I began. I hope that you will dive into our study of Matthew. I want you to recommit, listen, to dealing with the Lord at the level of the heart. Whatever defenses you've got set up that you normally bring in here when you hear a sermon where your, your defensiveness says, well, this is about those people, or I'm sure I'm glad so-and-so is here to hear that. Whatever your list of defenses is when you come in, I, I, will you make an opening for the Lord to do a work through the gospel of Matthew in your life? Will you come in humbly and ask, God, I don't know what you're gonna do as we go through this gospel, but would you help me see Jesus more clearly? And then would you help me respond to him more faithfully? Would you make that your prayer for the next couple of years as we work our way through this gospel? Let's pray together. Almighty God, we would see Christ. We, we, we beg of you that we might see him clearly in this time as we study this book. God, we, we don't want just to pass a test about knowledge about a book of the Bible. God, we want your word to affect our lives. We want you to 
God. We want you. And you have given yourself to us through your son. So Lord, now as we come to this table and receive the kind gift of your grace pictured in the sacrifice of Christ, God, would you make our hearts as receptive to this moment as we ought be to your word and as we ought be to everything you do. We pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen.